Hello, and welcome to our first Pass This News Elevate podcast of 2023. I'm Holly Bossel, and I'm here with Meg Parsky, partner at law firm Hush Blackwell. Hi, Meg. Thanks for helping us kick off the year. Yeah, thank you for having me, Holly. This is going to be an exciting conversation. There's no lack of things to talk about here. Yeah. Um, and everyone, and just in this episode, we're going to be discussing the this hospice regulatory outlook this year and 2023 and some of the biggest clients' challenges and concerns for providers on the horizon. So, um, Meg, I always think it's helpful to kind of look back before we look into what's happening now and in the future. So looking back a bit, you know, how have you seen hospice regulation kind of take shape in recent years on that like kind of legal side of things? Yeah, I think I've been doing this now for almost 23 years, going on 22 years here. And I've been a hospice lawyer and I think it has been the most aggressive enforcement climate that we have seen. So just in terms of audits, I mean, the amount of audit, new audits that we worked on in 2022, like shattered every record that we had in previous years. So we do a lot of data tracking ourselves because we really have clients in every state. So we can get a good glimpse of what's going on across the country. So I think it's really unprecedented in terms of the volume. And because there's been a lot of focus on very long lengths of stay patients, those audits are also worth lots of money. So most of those audits, each one is worth over a million dollars. I mean, we also saw, um, you know, all the TPE ramp up after the everything was stayed with COVID. So we have a lot of clients that are in the throes of that, in addition to dealing with new picks and CPI audits. And so I, I think that that has been um, probably the highlight of 2022. I mean, highlights usually want to talk about good news, but I, I think it's just, it, it's been a real challenging year for, for hospice in general. Sure. I was just touching base um, on some of the auditory, like some of those auditory repercussions that hospices are experiencing amid those pandemic-related operational and financial challenges you mentioned. Um, I know some of that can include um, We've discussed them before that come to mind, such as, you know, suspended or returned payments, things like that, of that nature. You want to discuss a little bit of those impacts from audits? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the audits that we're seeing are both prepayment and postpayment audits. And and this is all about hospice eligibility. And I, I think when you, you mentioned the word COVID, I mean, we have actually been dealing with provider relief fund audits too. So hospices are getting audited as to how they use their provider relief fund audits. So they're, those are, are being done. Uh, we also have the OIG audits that are happening and there's a number of different projects that are on their list. And so I, I think that while enforcement climate, I think, tempered down during COVID, I think that now we're at pre-pandemic levels or higher in terms of, you know, scrutiny and expectations. And I think that it's, it's sort of coming at all fronts because 
and I think you mentioned this in the opening, is some of, and you and I have talked about this previously, about some of the survey changes coming into play. And so a lot of the things that have hit hospices historically have been about payments, which are significant. But now I think with all of the, the survey changes that are happening and the kinds of remedies that can come out of that, including denial of payment for new admissions, which is a different way of getting payment suspension. Payment suspension can happen in like a UPIC audit too, but now in the survey process, if you have significant violations, you can get denial of payment for new admissions, which for hospices is significant because so much of our uh, revenue, 90, 95% comes from Medicare. So if you get a denial of payment for new admissions as a survey remedy, that could be very, very significant for your organization. And so, so I think there's just a lot of, a lot of changes and a lot of <laughs> in different ways adds up to money being very money uh, related issues. And I think when we, you know, talk about what's to come, I think it's going to be a carry through of some of the things that did happen in uh, 2022. You know, there was the, mm-hmm. New Yorker and ProPublica article that we can talk about that I think is going to uh, result in additional changes potentially in the industry and that are going to be mm-hmm. really significant as well. And, you know, we got VZIT on the horizon. And so I think there's, I, I do have some bright-sided news that um, <laughs> I can share at some point in this because I feel like everything we're talking about is pretty heavy, but I think there's also some some opportunities that I see coming in in 2023 for us as an industry too. So just keep listening because there'll be some good good things to come to. Right. Um, no, I, I appreciate that color because those um, financial aspects and and that kind of comes into that operational aspect and then ability to sustain and provide care. So all these ties are are connected to hospice's ability to remain compliant, remain available with their services and access for patients and families. So that just gives the broader brush of what we're kind of discussing here. So as far as like the, the regulatory outlook in 2023, and you've touched on this a bit as far as some of those continued regulatory forces in the past kind of coming into our current and future. I want to discuss a little bit more about what the impacts of things like that New Yorker article and other things and, mm-hmm. and are, are what are the, some of those things that are going to come into play this year and next? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think that the likely going to be changes that come out of that ProPublica article, I think everyone can be in agreement that some of the things highlighted in that article are very concerning as an industry at large. And so I think what it highlighted from my perspective is that the bar of entry into hospice can be very low. And so I think that as we mature as an industry, and like, for example, I always say hospice is like 10 years behind like nursing homes in terms of the maturity of our regulations and, and things like that. I think that 
we're going to see some maturing of the rules around enrollment and you know, if you're just opening up a hospice and not really providing services, you know, and then you just go sell that business and you weren't intended to be operational. I mean, there's already provisions in the law that allow the government to take action against that. And so I think, you know, that's just one of many areas that I think comes into focus that that just doesn't seem right that people should be able to do that. And so I think that when we look at enrollment and what are the qualifications to be a hospice and, you know, the rigor of certification surveys by accrediting bodies and things like that, because I think that, you know, as an industry, we want people entering this, you know, business who, as you said, are concerned with providing, you know, great quality of care and furthering access in our communities. In addition to some of those, you know, aspects that you touched on so far, do you see any sort of new compliance challenges or concerns that hospices should have on their radar as far as kind of avoiding that regulatory scrutiny? Yeah, well, I think that this is the preeminent challenge that we have is when there is an article like the one we were just discussing, you know, there can be actions that are too broad brush and focus perhaps the wrong people or wrong people who are doing things right get caught in the net. And, you know, I have some concerns about that. And I think rightfully so, people have some heartburn about, well, so, you know, is my survey and I've been in business for 40 years, am I going to be put through the ringer because, you know, of some article that came out? And so I think that the industry in general is bracing for as we are we going to all be lumped together in this and be viewed as an industry as opposed to there are a few bad providers out there and that things should be targeted towards weeding out those people. And I think that as an industry, you know, that's what we are are pushing for because there are many, 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 many wonderful hospices that provide much-needed services, and it's what I have devoted my professional life to. So mm-hmm. I don't want you know there to be sacrifices in good providers getting unwarranted scrutiny because of a few bad actors. And I think that that's something that we as an industry have been really trying to focus the government on is we do want you to target bad providers, but let's talk about who those people are and how we can take targeted initiatives uh, for those folks. Right. Sort of, I think that leads to my next question for you. I really say this, we don't have a crystal ball in front of us, but would you say that the um, regulatory stakes are, are higher in hospice this year than maybe others or compared to others? I think the regulatory climate for hospice in terms of the number of payment-related issues, I think we will continue to tap out in, in healthcare as a whole. So even if we're putting in hospitals and nursing homes and home health, I think the number of 
UPIC audits and different types of payment-related audits, I think we are really at the, the top end of that because I think the government has been concerned about a lot of growth. I think my concern is that, of course, we're going to have growth in this industry because we have a rising patient population. And I think while we see this growing audit activity, we work on these appeals all across the country. And, you know, we have great success through the appeal process. And so how things start and how things end, there's sort of a disconnect there. Like, for example, this year, we worked on a case, and I mean, it's, it was a multi-year affair, but it started out with a payment suspension that happened. <laughs> so that was in place for over six months. The company survived. They got their demand letter. They owed back several million dollars. But then by the time we got to ALJ, they that we won every single claim. So the error rate was zero and they owed zero dollars. And so something didn't go right there. Why didn't we have the the sort of very rigorous and sort of nuclear remedy, which is payment suspension? And then at the end of the day, we have to owe back zero dollars. So I, I think that perhaps other industries experience those kinds of extremes, but that I think happens too often in our industry related in particular to a lot of these appeals that we work on in these these audit issues. So I think we have time for one more question and that's really just, you know, how hospices can work to address some of these regulatory challenges this year and, and maybe what compliance might look like in 2023. I I think I wish there was something, you know, the magic wand or there's like, just do this one thing, but I think a lot of it's about the nuts and bolts of good documentation, and it's probably the most boring thing to talk about, right? But I oftentimes say the physician narrative is the single most important document in the medical record because that is the contemporaneous documentation decision-making about why something was terminally ill. And so really putting a priority in your organization and giving physicians the time necessary to really do a great job with those. Because when you get audited two, three, four years later, you have a great narrative to go back to. The likelihood that that claim will get denied is going to be less. And if you do have to defend a claim denial, it's going to be a lot easier for that physician to recall, yes, this is why I believe that person was terminally ill. So quality physician narratives are always top of my list. And then I think, you know, as much as EMRs can help people in the efficiency of their documentation, I think, you know, making sure we don't, the pendulum doesn't swing so far that people copy and paste a lot in their notes and that people are doing a lot of checkboxing, you know, clicking, but they're not writing narrative because it it is really that narrative text that's going to help paint the picture of the patient. And as we all know, there's a lot of subtle changes that happen with hospice patients. I mean, many hospice patients don't have drastic changes every single day, but they do have disease progression and making sure that, you know, we're, we're capturing that and you can really only do that, I think, if you're writing good 
narratives when you're doing those clinical visits. So I know that sounds like probably a broken record and maybe, you know, something we were still talking about 10 years ago, but I, I still think the better your the quality of your documentation, the easier it is to defend those claims. But I think that uh, the, maybe the, the bright-sided note to end here is when I gave the story about the client where we dealt with, you know, a payment suspension and a high error rate and millions of dollars, and then they owe zero dollars. I mean, when these things happen, it is really a long road. But there can be a happy ending at the end of the day. And so it is really having the stamina to to see it through. And so having good documentation that is ultimately going to really help in that task. Diligent documentation that's supportive. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is like very elusive too, right? Because you know, people that say, I didn't go to nursing school to spend all my time documenting or whatever. But I, I think, unfortunately, you know, the quality of that documentation is really the testament. And I guess mm-hmm. one thing I would leave saying here is I think when we do education on documentation, we so often focus on, well, I'm doing this to prepare for my IDP meeting and I'm capturing this so I know what the vital signs were. And they're sometimes not fully grasping who the audience for our documentation is. And it is really a third-party medical reviewer looking at this patient who's never going to actually see this person in person, may know very little about hospice, and you need to provide that context and um, for that person, that's who you're writing this documentation for. And I think when you help educate people on who's the audience for what you're doing in the medical record, it can be sort of an aha moment that gives people a different perspective and then maybe writes their documentation from knowing that that's who's going to be leading it down the road can be helpful too. I think that's really all the time that we have for um, in this episode of our Hospice News Elevate podcast. Thank you again, Meg, for joining the conversation. For everyone, My pleasure. And for everyone tuning in, too. Thanks again. All right. Take care until our next episode. Mm-hmm.